0: Welcome to the Friday Golf Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison, and today we're talking about an exciting new golf course project in Tasmania. The course is called Seven Mile Beach. It's being built on sand dunes right next to the ocean, a short drive from the Hobart International Airport, and it will be public. The architects are Michael Clayton and his partner, Mike DeVries, both of whom we've had on the podcast previously. But in this episode, I'll be talking to the biggest force behind the golf course at Seven Mile Beach, and that is Matthew Goggin. Matt is a professional golfer who has played on the PGA Tour and has won five times on what is now known as the Corn Ferry Tour. He also grew up in Tasmania, not far from Seven Mile Beach, and he's been familiar with that piece of land since he was a kid, basically. This project is really his baby, and I'm looking forward to talking to him about how he got it off the ground, what the design and construction process has been like, and why he's already planning to build another course right next door. All of that is coming up after this break. Our partner for this episode is AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it literally every day. I gave AG1 a try because I've never been very good at sticking to a routine with vitamins or pills. But now I just drink AG1 in the morning before my first cup of coffee, and it immediately clears my head and makes me feel like I've done something good for my body right off the bat. I started drinking AG1 a few months ago, and I've definitely noticed some improvements in my digestion and energy levels. You know, this is especially helpful when I'm on the road. I don't always eat super healthy food when I'm traveling. I don't always do the little things that I'm able to do when I'm home. But now I can take my AG1 travel packs with me, and I know I have my nutritional bases covered. Every day, I'm setting myself up for success with 75 high-quality ingredients that support energy, focus, strength, and clarity. So if a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, then try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash the fried egg. That's drinkag1.com slash the fried egg. Check it out. So Matt Goggin, you grew up in Tasmania. Tell me about where you played golf when you were a kid.
1: Um, I was lucky. Like golf in Australia is relatively cheap and it was much cheaper back then. And um, my mum was a really good player. She was, you know, three-time Australian amateur champion and she'd won the Tasmanian amateur the state I'm from like 20 times and played for Australia for sort of, I think, 15 or 18 years or something like that, crazy like that. So golf was always around, but it wasn't kind of like the sport I always played, but when I got a little bit, had a few injuries in other sports and start, golf started taking over. And I think we've all been through that process when all of a sudden it just takes you over and it becomes the thing you want to do and you just become obsessed with golf. Um, and so I played at uh, Royal Hobart and Tasmania Golf Club, which were at the time two top 30 golf courses in Australia. I think it cost about $100 to be a member of both as a junior. So I had sort of free reign to play as much golf and obviously parents have all played golf and my grandparents played golf and... So it was always around, and it was always I could always get down to the golf course. So yeah, I was lucky.
0: You mentioned your mom, whose name is Lindy, I believe. Correct, right? And yep. and she is, if you ask Australian golfers uh, about your mom, they 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 talk about her with with some you know degree of awe and so i'm sure that uh you know your family had a huge influence on your initial forays in, into the game so in general you know your mom as well as other members of your family what kind of influence did they have on you early on yeah it was
1: interesting because like it was always like your mom could whoop you you know <laughs> on the golf course it's always this thing of like she would just destroy you every time you went out and played so i was just like man i'm just getting beaten by my mum all my time and all this sort of stuff but then when i could finally actually hang with her i knew i was a you know i was probably a state player by then because she was still playing for um she was still playing for tasmania as well my grandfather was probably my biggest influence because you know, he was the one that took me down to golf course uh, every day and after school and all that sort of stuff. And we played a lot of golf and he sort of gave me a few lessons as I got started. So he was probably the biggest influence, but obviously having, you know, mum and dad as well, being full time um, lovers of golf like I was. It was great atmosphere to to become a golfer for sure. You've written beautifully about,
0: about your grandfather's influence uh, on you. I recommend that people go seek out that piece. Uh, he passed away uh, a while ago. Yeah. Um, can you, now there's an interesting link between that very sad incident and, uh, your, your eventual involvement in the, uh, seven mile beach project and who you brought on board. So could you just tell me that story? How, how is, how is all yeah, that stuff well, connected?
1: Um, it's, I mean, I grew up playing predominantly at Royal Hobart and, and the site for seven mile beach is just down the road. It's, it's basically if, if Royal Hobart is 500 or 700 yards off the beach, Seven Mile Beach is another four or five kilometers, so three miles directly down Seven Mile Beach, which is, it is seven miles, as you can imagine, um, down that end. But when we were juniors, we, um, you know, the typical sort of royal club where you didn't feel like you could go upstairs, you had to, you know, take your hat off and change your shoes or put a coat on and all that sort of stuff. So when it came to lunch, we would go to this burger joint down the road um, that was on the other side of the airport. And when we're down there, you could see all the, like we remembered all the dunes and we'd go and we'd have a look and like, well, why isn't the golf course in here? Like, why was Royal Hobart not, not there? And, and funnily enough, my grandfather was around when Royal Hobart moved from its original location. And that's a very, you know, that, that seems to happen a lot to golf courses in Australia where, you know, they're in, they're in the city and the area gets built up. They have to move economic reasons or financial pressures or the, the ability to be able to make a ton of money by selling the selling the the, the property. They move further out. So my grandfather and um, one of his best buddies, who was a big supporter of golf, and they supported a lot of professional golfers. And obviously, he had a daughter who was one of the best players in the world. So he was always around golf. They helped move Royal Hobart down to that area. Um, so it was kind of ironic that you know we always thought, well, why was in the golf course moved to. You know the sand dunes, but I used to go down there and hit balls with my grandfather along the beach. He was a big savvy Ballesteros guy, and he was always telling me, like, you got to go and hit balls off the sand and hit a, you know, practice your your three iron off off the off the beach. So we used to go down and hit balls, and you could just go from one end to the other. I mean, you could just go for hours just hitting, and you'd never see anyone because it wasn't a very you know popular beach as far as going to because there was no real infrastructure down there. It wasn't like you could park a car. You could sort of get at one end, but you could go all the way to the other end and never see another person. So we'd go down, hit balls. He was kind of a beachcomber at heart. He grew up sleeping on the beach and, you know, you know, combing the beach for, for whatever he could find and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, we used to do stuff like that, hit balls. He had a – we'd go and fish. So he held us, had a huge influence um, on my golf career because he was always there, you know what I mean, and he was always like um, – you know, a huge support, but he was also in the construction industry. So he had all the equipment and um, he actually helped build um, Lanhern Golf Club and one of his guys who worked for him ended up shaping on a couple of projects for Peter Toogood. So it was ironic in in the way that when I came to do this was well after he'd been gone. And that was sort of what I was talking about in that article was that really he had so much to do with the area, with Hobart. He built the airport um, pretty much every... Half the roads that have been built down there, he was either involved or contracted on. So he's very much woven into the fabric of the city, um, even though you wouldn't know that. And um, and so that's where I talk about if he'd still be alive, how this project would have been done years ago. Because this is just so much so far up his alley, and he was such a lover of golf. And you know, to be able to do that, it's not about my legacy. It's more about continuing his legacy in his name than it is about anything I've ever done.
0: Mm. And then. Michael Clayton became connected with the project years ago. Uh, yeah. Michael Clayton also has a connection with your grandfather, uh, and so could you yeah. tell me how how you met
1: Mike and how he became involved in in this project? Yeah. So, as I said, my grandfather and a, and a friend of his, Alf Goff, they were they loved professional golf. They would go to all the tournaments. They would go to the Australian Open or you know the Vic Open, and they ended up becoming quite friendly with some of the touring pros. And obviously my mum was one of the best players in the world. So she was actually as an amateur playing, I mean, funnily enough, they'd won the World, the Queen Circuit Cup, um, which was the, the equivalent of the Eisenhower on the women's side. And some of the women amateur golfers were bigger celebrities than the men's golfers. So there's some tournaments like at the Vic Open, I believe, they'd put the women's groups or they would invite them to come and play and they get just as many people to come out and watch Lindy and Edwina and all, that, all them play. And I think mum played with Peter Thompson or something one year in the Vic Open in one of the last groups. So she was around the, the, the men as well. Um, Mike Clayton had caddied for a couple of mum's friends or competitors in interstate series and stuff like that because they all used to sort of play against each other um, and some of the guys would caddy for the girls and all that sort of stuff back in the day. So she knew Mike from, a very, from when he was a good amateur and when she was a good amateur. So fast forward to when Mike's a professional, Alf and Gordon, or my grandfather, Gorg, he would come, like a bunch of them would come down and play the Tassie Open, and a lot of them invariably ended up staying at my grandfather's house or coming over or hanging out for a barbecue. So he knew all of them. So when I first turned pro um Clates was always very supportive I mean I didn't I didn't I knew of him because he was kind of like the a stalwart on the European tour and was a good player in his own right but a bit of a veteran so you kind of knew who Mike Clayton was um, but he had no reason to know me but he knew me through my mum and through my through my grandfather so when my grandfather died quite quite suddenly in a car accident I was you know I'd gone to the funeral I was coming back it was, it was I was actually in a tournament in Asia playing and I found out on the Wednesday um, before the tournament Mm. and I just wanted to come straight home but obviously you know my grandmother and my mum and dad said no play the tournament that's what your grandfather would have wanted you to do he just loved your golf finish out the tournament then come back for the funeral so I finished out the tournament came back for the funeral the very next week there was another tournament so I went straight out and played that tournament and the first day I get there I'm just sort of hitting balls and Mike went out of his way to come out and say um you know, sorry about your loss, your grandfather was a great man, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and said some really nice things that meant a lot to me at the time because, you know, I didn't know Mike and I looked up to Mike as one of the good players. For him to, like, come out of his way, stop his practice because my grandfather had died was, was quite touching. Um, so we were always – and he's, he's, he still does it to the day. To, to this day, he's really supportive of young players coming up. Yes. Like he caddies for Elvis Smiley. He's done a lot for – um. A lot of the players are Victorian players. He's, he's always kind of like catting or helping them out, giving them some advice, playing with them at Metro. So he's he's done it his whole career to his credit. Um, so when when I finally got to like maybe doing something at the site at Seven Mile Beach and the kind of the history there is that had been city, it's basically um, 900 hectares, 20 minutes out of downtown, on the main growth corridor right next to the airport and it has – seven mile or 10 kilometers of beach frontage on one side and the back side is a lagoon with another four or five kilometers of beachfront and it's shaped almost like a dolphin's nose and there's just nothing there it's just if you look at a, a google map at night or you know you it's it it's all these lights going down there and then you have this it's black and it never made any sense as to why there was never any development there right like you'd think you know, prime development property right on the beach. There'd be some sort of residential, there'd be something there, but it would basically been locked up because a lot of it was on a sand mine um, and they hadn't decided when to extract the sand or where they could extract the sand. There'd been a few developments through the 80s and 90s and, and it almost got to the point where I was waiting for someone to build a golf course there, fully expecting it to happen. Like there, it was going to happen one day, one of the clubs would move there. It was just too obvious um, because the, the site which Royal Hobart sits on is dead flat, right? This has 20-metre sand dunes, and it's, you, know, you can get all the views, and it's, it's spectacular. It just made no sense that it, there wasn't a golf course there or wasn't something there, right? So when I finally went, made the effort to um, explore why something hadn't really – why nothing had happened there, like I thought there must have been a reason, you know what I mean? There must be some flora and fauna, um, heritage value, something, you know, inundation, some flower, some animal, some something. And uh, really the only reason was a lot of the developments had been put in the sand mine area and the government was very hesitant to give any okay because they were, it was the last remaining, you know, sand resource that close to the city, so it was much cheaper for them to use it if there was ever going to be big infrastructure projects for concrete, etc., cetera, et cetera. So I went and had a look around and found out where the sand mine was. And, and when I went to the government, I said, look, we're not in the sand mine. We're out of the sand mine. That area is not that great for golf anyway. All the spectacular sand dunes are down there, down the, um, the east and the southeast corner of it. So they agreed to give me a non-exclusive um, development license, which would allow me to do soil testing. That was it, you know what I mean? That was the big, here you go, you know, go and find out whether you can do this. So, of course, I'm like, okay, great. But then I have no clue, right? I don't actually know. It's just I think it's good for golf. Mm-hmm. I mean, that doesn't mean anything. Like, right. I, I've never built a golf course. I've never seen a site before it's had golf on it. I've just wandered around all these great golf courses all over the world. And, it, and it's covered and in
0: trees at this point, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. completely. It's, covered it's in hard trees, yeah. for somebody who's not a golf architect to see the potential of a piece of land well, that has that uh, grown up in this way.
1: Yeah, and, and in classic sort of golf pro um, style, the far end had no trees on it. The, the 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 trees had slowly taken over through the years because for, you know, if you look at aerial pictures 60, 70 years ago, there's no trees on the section where the golf course is, but there's this pine plantation um, just north, which is just a commercial operation. So they've just propagated slowly through the years and been unmanaged. So they're a tree that should only grow for 20 years and then they get cut anyway. So you imagine you've got trees that are 60, 70 years old, almost about to die, most of them. They're the huge, ugly, radiata pine monsters. But when you get down the end, you get have clear views. So I'm like, oh, wouldn't it be amazing, all these holes in here. So when Clates comes down to have a look and then finally, you know, Clates with his other sort of, at that time it was Mike Clayton Golf. It wasn't even Ogilvy Clayton Golf. But when Ash Mead and Mike Cocking, who worked for, um, clates came down looked around and they they kind of wandered around and the way they approached it was well, we'll put a big x through all the areas that are unsuitable for golf and of course all the areas i thought were amazing are like crossed out <laughs> like that's unsuitable for golf so i didn't i knew what i was looking at but i didn't really know what i was looking at so i had clates come down to have a look and just to verify that yeah this this is decent and worth pursuing and um and that's where that line Came that day after three days of looking around. It's like, well, if we f it up, it'll be the second best. It'll still be the second best course in Australia. <laughs> that sounds. That sounds like Clayton. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly <laughs> something he would say. So then, when I got the chance to then meet with the premier and you know the head of parks and because it's under all different jurisdictions too, which is the other tricky thing about the project. It enabled me to have the confidence to say, well, look, you know, I've had actual experts come down who do this, um, and are world-class at it. And they're just saying, you know, it's exceptional. So that gave me the confidence to then not be just like, Hey, I'm a good golfer and I know what I'm talking about.
0: This is quite a story because (laughs) it it really spans your whole life, you know, uh, because this, this place, this area around the airport that your grandfather had a role in bringing about, uh, is is just full of these places that you spent a lot of time as a kid yeah. the, the the golf courses royal hobart um and you know, there are a few golf courses around there you look at it on the map this is this is one of those yeah. places that has quite a few golf courses and it's it's outside the main part of the city Correct. um and then then there's this kind of mysterious piece of land that that you knew when you were a kid and and now you're getting to develop a uh, a really intriguing looking golf course there with somebody who you've been familiar with since you were a young pro and is also connected to your family. And so it's it's interesting all these all these little kind of filaments that go out and connect every part of this story, the land and you and 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 your past.
1: Yeah, I mean it, it's not that I thought of growing up and then one day being like, I want to be a golf course developer. I want to build a golf course. It never entered my mind. Like I didn't want to have, it was more that like, well, someone's going to have to do it. And then as years went on, as I did the more sort of investigation, as I said to like, well, there must be a reason why not. And there wasn't, well, that's when we, it, and it's been a really interesting, like, well, where's the hurdle? You know, where's the, where's the stop sign? Cause it's going to come. And, you know, we had some pretty big you know, hurdles or walls to climb over, but there was never a stop sign. Um, and that's sort of been the, the whole history of the project. And it's taken a long time to get to where we are, but there hasn't been a stop sign. And now we're, you know, it's a reality. Like I, I keep sort of thinking something, you know, you're always worried about getting to opening day and, you know, whether it's going to happen. And I, I sort of can't, um, still kind of can't bring it to reality that like, like it's happening. You know, I mean, there's always there's just so much we have to do before we open that it's just still seems such an insurmountable amount of work to get to that point, even though there is 15 holes seated. (laughs) It's like it's happening whether I want it to or not. Right. It has to happen at this point. Yeah, there's there's no preventing
0: it. Um, All right. Well, so we'll get back into some of the details of of this project maybe a little bit later in the conversation. But first, you know, got to talk a bit about your professional career which is a a long and distinguished one um and so you know i mean that'll take we've got a couple of minutes I guess we, can, <laughs> we, can, we, we can knock can, that off we can touch on a few what things what are we going to do for the, the I other mean, you've played all over the world, world. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people would <laughs> like have, to yeah. have won you know five corn yeah. fairy tour events uh so uh, you know coming out of tasmania i i'm sure there was an interesting path to eventually ending up on the pga tour um you know you didn't just go straight there you yeah. played on a lot of other tours especially the the Australasian tour PGA tour Australasia yeah. or, or whatever the preferred nomenclature is now yeah um what what tours aside from the PGA tour did you play on when you were coming up and and what were those like
1: yeah well i started my big break really was getting into the australian institute of sport mm. because and i mean this is such been... a common
0: thread between so many good Australian golfers, yeah. right? You, you, yeah, I, I believe Aaron Baddeley came up through there. Adam yeah. Scott, you know that this is a this is a really effective. Yeah, so there was system. a whole
1: different. There was sort of different systems. like so the Australian Institute of Sport was the sort of the first um, living. A lot of the others were state based, so okay. it might be the the QIS or the VIS or the Queensland Institute of Sport, the Victorian Institute of Sport. The AIS is was originally it's about Olympic medals. Oh. That, that's sort of its point. It was, It was. Um, and so they brought, so it was always Olympic sports, but then they also saw a little bit of value in like, well, there's sort of cricket cricket, football, Aussie rules football and golf, which are more appealing to maybe bring in corporate dollars. So they started these sort of fledgling programs and the, the AIS cricket, pretty much every great cricketer has been through the AIS cricket, Well, golf was still a little bit segmented when I was coming through it. So we were kind of, you weren't necessarily, like a lot of the, the Adam Scotts or the Jason Days or... The Aaron Badleys were kind of staying in their state-based institutes. Okay. Well, we had nothing down in Tassie. So for me to go there was just my big opportunity and I sort of grabbed it with both hands. And, I mean, in a weird way, I was sort of the only Tasmanian to play on the PGA Tour before and after, you know, no one since. So obviously that opportunity, and that opportunity has definitely changed because it went from a two-year live-in program to now kind of a little bit more disseminated. They send you know, coaches and stuff to your state as opposed to we had to move to Melbourne, live full-time, um, and it was great. You just practice, play golf all the time. You had to do, you know, four hours of kind of study a week, which was a <laughs> bit of a joke. One of them was communication skills. So this is why I'm so brilliant to play <laughs> camera, right? <laughs> <laughs> Two hours a week. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty funny, but that really took me from being a talented amateur with no path, to uh, a blueprint, if you like, of, if you took advantage of it, every every resource was there. So I went in, you know, barely on the state team, basically. I don't know whether I was on the state team, maybe I was, state junior team, to winning the Australian amateur and being one of the top two or three amateurs in the world within sort of 24 months. So that changed everything for me, that changed my course. So after I won the Australian amateur, it gave me an exemption on the Australian tour didn't have to go through Q School. Um, it was different back then. In like getting your card just meant they had a hundred cards at Q School. It just meant you could go and try and Monday qualify. It didn't actually didn't matter whether you finished first or a hundredth. It was the same. Um, and then if you if you made a cut and top tens, you got into the next week. So I then went to Asian Q School. That used to, there used to be two Asian tours back then. There was the Bender Tour, which was the old original. Asian tour. Then I had the new Upstart tour, which is the Omega tour, which is now what we you know know as the Asian tour. Um, Then I got a few invites on the uh, on the Challenge tour. Right. This is my first year. The European tour. Yeah. So so my first year. Yeah. First year I played Australia, some Asian tour, and then I get some invites into the Challenge tour. And um, it's funny because I was over there. I I had a couple of invites, and then I was that was it. I was done. So I got on a plane. I flew back, I got back on Saturday, Sunday. I then got a phone call from my manager saying, actually, you're in the next week. So I had to get back on a plane. So I literally, you know, and this is the old London, Singapore, Singapore, Melbourne. It's, you know, it's sitting in the middle of the back plane. Like this is not, you know, it's not how you do it, you know, when you're on tour and you're traveling business class. This is, <laughs> but um, so I turn around, get on the plane, get back Wednesday, I get back there on Wednesday. I've spent six days basically on a plane down and back. <laughs> Oh my gosh. With only 24 hours at home, and and I win the tournament, you know, great, perfect, and then so that enabled me to get to finals of European Q School. I got my European Tour card, played in Europe for a couple of years. Funnily enough, I had that um, that that was when the US and the, that was before there was the special relationship before for the uh, between the European Tour and the PGA Tour, and <laughs> right. they sort of competed the, the a little bit. The uh, <laughs> strategic alliance, yeah, yeah, strategic, yeah, yeah. So they had. Um, they basically put on the finals of Q School the same week so you couldn't do both because they didn't like that some of their players, young players, were doing both. And then if they'd get through, because the only way you could get on back then really was you'd go to Q School and they'd have, you know, from when you turned amateur. And then if you didn't get your card, you played the Challenge or the Nike Tour. But, but the good players were, or the, you know, the young guns were always getting through Q School. Um, but they didn't want them to do both. So they put it on the same week. Now, I'd finished exempt into both, so I had to choose which one I was going to do, right? So I choose um, the US tour, so I get my Nike card, but I finished 116 on the European Order of Merit. Now, this is kind of like the sort of the mistakes you make or the things that change your life. I didn't think, I thought 116 was like, I'm done. I'm not in, I don't get into any European tour events. So I didn't even bother looking at whether I would get into tournaments. I just went and played the first Nike tournament in Mexico, not realizing that the kind of one sixteen on the money list was actually pretty good. (laughs) Anyway, it all worked out in the end. I ended up getting my um, US tour card and then played the US from then on. But yeah, I mean, I've played in a lot of different places. Yeah, Yeah.
0: well, so basically what you're saying is that not understanding the points list is what caused you to then (laughs) you know, turn your, turn your attention to America uh, yes. and, and go play on what was then the Nike tour, what is now Correct. the Corn Ferry tour. Uh, that's, yeah. that's so interesting. You're definitely not the first professional golfer <laughs> not to understand these, these various points lists and, and what they well, mean.
1: You, back then it was money list, right? So it was a yeah. little bit simpler, right, right. you know, and I, and it was actually Tom Gillis had made like a 30, 40 footer on the last hole to knock me out from 115 to 116. Mm. So that was sort of the whole the whole thing there. So I was gutted, and like I always wanted to play in the US anyway, but I it just it, it just didn't occur to me. I'm like, you either have your card or you don't. Yeah. You know. So what, I mean, what you probably should have done was gone back. I was at finals. I could go back to finals. Worst case scenario is I'm either going to get into 15 or 20 events, or you know, which is still you know young guy getting going. You probably take advantage of that. But I went no, it just went straight to the US. You know, hearing this story is so
0: interesting because you're coming from Tasmania. You know, it's not the most remote place in the world, but it's It's pretty pretty remote. remote. It's pretty, you know, (laughs) it's uh, and and yes, you had a family connection to the game and and all that I'm sure was helpful. But you you came a long way from Hobart to playing on the Nike tour and then the PGA tour. I I wonder if you I mean, there's been so much restructuring of the world tours especially in the past few years and the official world golf ranking changes factor into this. Surely Mm -hmm. I wonder if just overall, you think that that path is different for a player now coming up from a a place like Tasmania,
1: whether you think it's become easier or become more difficult. Well, it's it's way more competitive. And not to say that it wasn't competitive, but just there's just so much money involved, I think a lot more people just turn their attention to golf as being an actual legitimate sports career as opposed to some sort of fringe sport. Um so so I think that's made a big difference. What the Australian Tour has done well recently is I think they've actually realized that the opportunities to get on tour have become like a lot of them have even like the US tour is a classic example where they force you onto the Corn Ferry Tour. So someone like myself who's in that sort of 45 to 50, now we have Q School um, back, like, well, we might go and do Q School. But but for the last sort of 10 years, it's like, well, no, there's no point doing Q School because you've got Corn Ferry status anyway. So you're just out there humping around on the Corn Ferry Tour when really you probably if there was an opportunity to get your PGA Tour card directly, you probably might not play that many Corn Ferry events. And the whole sort of idea around the Corn Ferry was to be a rotation tour, guys come on, come off there to get their card, and then pretty much everyone just gets another opportunity back at Q School. Well, it's become a lot more of a closed shop as they've tried to sort of open things up. It's got like, It's probably gotten more closed. So when I was coming, you just when I was coming up, you just go to Q school, and if there, it, it wasn't, it was difficult, but it wasn't impossible. It wasn't five cards; it was you know twenty five, and then there was another. You know, everyone else then got Nike status, and away you go. So if you made it to finals, you were going to get something. Um, well, now it's completely different. It's completely different. So what the, the Australian Tour has done a good job of recently is I think they've recognized that if we can just get opportunities to final stage of Q School, like now like the top three players get some sort of DP World Tour status, I think that's huge um, as opposed to trying to be, oh, we're the fourth biggest tour in the world and you know everyone should want to come and play the Australian Open and, and, and we're going to try and be some sort of competitive tour as opposed to, I think being a feeder tour makes it a lot, a lot better for the young guys but it's super competitive and not many guys are coming through like when i came through there was well i think we had up to 20 something australians on tour at one stage um and if you take out a lot of the legacy guys the young guys there's not too many guys under 30 um australians on the, on the tour anymore and we hmm. used to have a pretty solid contingent right what do you think has changed there is it is it
0: something domestically within Australia that's changed in the development of young players? Or do you think the competition from the world has just become so much more significant? That yeah, that's I, th- I think there's the more
1: competition. I, I also think that there may be something missing in respect that we've had really good amateurs that just haven't taken the next step. You know, we've had guys that are in the top two or three amateurs in the world. And what you normally find is those, those top half, like the half a dozen American guys that you can see through college and you see them come through, they they generally make it. Do you know what I mean? And it is much easier playing on your home tour. Everything's comfortable. You know, you're in America all the time. There's no cultural change or anything, stuff like that. But we've had Australians every year who are in the top four or five amateurs in the world. They're making the final, the US amateur. They're dominating everywhere. And then they turn pro and then they, they can't seem to break through that Corn Ferry. Um, ceiling or, or or this we've had so many good players that haven't haven't quite made it and maybe it just needs a review of what we're doing compared to what we used to do but it's um it's certainly not spitting out as many good players at the highest level like the the just below that there are australians everywhere doing quite well but it's just getting that that next um that next step up sure yeah so the name matt Goggin
0: probably first came across my radar when i was watching the 2009 open championship and you had a legitimate chance to win that tournament at turnberry yeah what do you remember from
1: that sunday afternoon um i was sort of at a point in my career where i had quite a lot of belief in myself and that i belonged and that you know i'd had a lot of near misses or opportunities to win tournaments. I'd been in the top 50 in the world. Um, I'd played with most of the players and been around for a while. So it was probably the first major where it just felt I just felt more relaxed during the whole week because, I mean, you tend to get into those tournaments. You put so much focus and there's so much more energy. There's so many more people. And, when, and I don't mean crowds. I mean hangers-on, like everyone's there that week. You know, there's extra people from Made who want to talk to you from the range. There's, you know, your, your agent and the other guy who helps the agent and his buddy's there as well. And like, there's just so much more energy and, and, and stuff going on that sometimes it can be quite distracting and you never feel, you never get into your normal rhythm. But I felt like I'd played a few majors and got to the point where, I knew what to expect and um, I felt pretty comfortable so you know I played quite well all week I felt quite relaxed all week and I finally got to a point even during the tournament where I actually felt in control of myself in like one of the biggest moments so that was quite satisfying but then you know to just fall short I hit a couple of shots that um, especially the one into the par three I thought was perfect and you know and you end up making bogey um, and that's just golf right I mean so yeah it's, it's one of those sort of You look back on it fondly, but it was also the biggest um, missed opportunity. And, you know, it certainly gives me a few nightmares as well. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, I'm sure it gives Tom Watson a few nightmares, uh, too. Everybody remembers this tournament uh, for that duel. Obviously, you were uh, involved in, in the action going down the stretch. Uh, do you remember what you were doing when, when things were playing out between Sink and Watson? Where where were you at that point? Were you watching the tournament?
1: Yeah, no, I wasn't watching actually. I was just sort of um, decompressing in the locker room by myself, yeah. um, to be honest, sort of getting ready. To, to. I was on the charter back. I think I was the last player in the last group, so I was kind of holding everyone up. So I was sort of cognizant of getting to the planes so everyone can get to the Canadian Open and not being the guy that just sort of holds everyone up. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. but... Yeah, it was an interesting because all day it felt like obviously you, the first couple of holes you're so nervous you can't even, it's an out-of-body experience. And then, then you finally settle down and it becomes just it really just becomes another round of golf and you get so into what you're doing that, you know, the outside stuff. And, and even when it came to the end of the tournament, it wasn't like I got any more nervous. I felt just as comfortable making a couple of bogeys as what I did making a couple of birdies. It just felt like a regular day. Um, you know, and, and we, Tom and I spoke about a few things on the way around. Um, it was only really towards the end where he, you could tell um, the, the intensity in really ramped up for him. Um, just with a few conversations, a few things he said to his caddy, you could tell that, like, you know, it, now it was, you know, it was really serious as opposed to just like <laughs> regular last round of a British Open series. It's like, I'm going to win series. Right. Yeah. So, but it was interesting because, I mean, I was pretty close to the action um, when he played the last hole. And I even said to my caddy, cause like after I um, didn't birdie 17 and bogeyed 15, 16, it was like, well, um, it's over for me. Um, and that's when I kind of said to my caddy at the time, Brian, I'm like, I can't, can you believe this is going to happen? Because we hadn't really, you don't bring yourself to think, like, he's just another player, right? Mm. It's just, you know, you're out there doing your best and you don't really care about anybody else. It's not like, you're not worried about his story, you're worried about your own story and, and trying to finish it off for yourself. So then when you get there, it's like, it was like the first time I thought like, well, this is kind of crazy that um, that he's about to win the tournament. And he um, pulled out. I think it was probably the old Adams Rescue back then. Like when it was probably a... No, those were the, the those state of the art. That, Yeah, that was, that the, was the, the original rescue. No yeah. one had rescues. That was probably the only one. And I remember him thinking at the time like, wow, that's, why would he be taking on the bunker? This is insane. Just hit like a five iron and a seven. It was howling down breeze. And he just slots it between the, the gauze on the right and the bunker on the left, which is like a... Black hole, that that bunker. Actually, probably the best shot of the tournament was, um, I think Lee Westwood hitting it on the green out of that bunker. You have no idea how impossible that is. <laughs> but, um, but then when he ripped his second shot, I think he just hit it too good. Do you know what I mean? He just flushed right. it. Like you couldn't land it in the middle of the green. It was always going to go long. It was never, there was no chance it was going to check or stop. It was going to run 30, 40 yards. Um, and it was almost like the hole before he had, Sort of a shot you could putt, or a shot you could chip, um, and he decided to putt it, and he putted it down stone dead, made a birdie, and I think that really influenced his um, the pitch shot on on eight, on 18 because it was a very simple pitch back into the breeze. Had coming up and over a swale. It's sort of one of those shots where if you don't quite hit it right, it's going to land on the downslope and run. If you if you hit it a bit too good, the wind's going to hold it up and it's going to spin a little bit. But if you've got to putt it up and over and down, and like that week, the frog hair, we call it the frog hair, the fringe, was a little bit lush for a British Open, so it was really two different speeds. So it was always a little bit trickier to judge. But I honestly think that the the success of the shot on 17 gave him the you know the feeling to to putt that. And I would say his probably short game wasn't – like he he wasn't chipping the ball stone dead either. Like he was chipping the ball to six or seven feet a lot, but he was just making them. Right. Um, But, you know, it's it's similar to when you watch sort of Kenny Perry when he hit that shot through the back of 17 at the Masters when he's got a pretty simple chip and he blades it. And you go – and it's just like all the energy drains out of someone and you can see their shoulders. Like instead of being up and like ready, it's like everything just sort of – it's like there's, it's a complete switch of energy. You go from like being positive and I'm gonna to win to like, oh, don't stuff this up or what have I done? Or I can't believe I hit that, any of those sorts of things. So it was a similar thing where as soon as you hit that shot, it was just like, the, the whole feeling around there was like, oh no. It was like this moment of celebration to instantly, you know, that, you know, that, oh no. It's like being in a football stadium when you just, the momentum swings and you just know something bad's about to happen. And it was almost like from that moment onwards he was he was done, which you know was pretty disappointing because he eat a pretty terrible putt, but and the rest is kind of history, right? All
0: right, I just wanted to take a moment here to talk about Friday Golf's membership, which is called Club TFE. You can check it out at the slash membership. It's $120 a year and you get a lot with that. You get a weekly course review with an official egg rating. You get access to the Club TFE blog where we've been doing a bunch of stuff lately, including Design Notebook, which is a a weekly summary of, of what's going on in the golf architecture world, providing some perspective on all the new construction projects and things of that nature. You get a monthly members only video. Our latest video, which actually just came out yesterday, is all about North Berwick in Scotland. And it's narrated by the architect James Duncan. And it's it's really beautiful. Um, and I can say that because I didn't make it myself. It was made by by Cameron Hurtis. But that's Club TFE. Again, it's com slash membership. This membership has really been a key source of support for doing the kind of work that we love to do at Friday Golf. So if you've been into the podcast, if you like the newsletter, then consider Club TFE. Why don't we transition back from the 2009 Open Championship to present day uh, just outside of Hobart. Um, So Seven Mile Beach. You've talked about how you saw the land first when you were a kid. What specifically is this land like? You've mentioned big sand dunes. Give me a more detailed picture of of what it's like out there.
1: Yeah, so it's it's basically, as I said, it's like a long It's like a dolphin's nose, right? So the area where we've sort of got the golf course in, you know, or golf course one, is kind of three quarters of the way along, on the southern side or on the southeastern side, and it's tilted like um, it's kind of tilted from the highest point which is probably about 60 feet, 20 meters, and it goes all the way down to the beach. So it's kind of frames everything that everyone is kind. Of, every sort of, every hole can look down to the beach because it's an uninterrupted view from the high point to the low point. So you have the high section, high ridge dune, and then the other side of the ridge dune goes straight down to two meters. So it literally falls off a cliff. You go straight, so you, it's this really weird... Um, kind of frontal dune complex that faces the, you know, basically Antarctica. On the other side, you have this very, you know, still lagoon on the other side of the dolphin's nose, if you like. So you have these sand dunes build up and then they just drop down to nothing. So you have the high section, which is at about 20 metres, 60 feet, Then you have the medium section, which is about 10 metres, you know, 30 feet, then you get down to the beach where it's all sort of rumpled and you have three, four, five, six metre dunes. So you really have these three levels. So if you're familiar with Tara um, Tara is very similar but a, a little bit flatter it's more of a continuous slope but we have these sort of three very distinct sections that you play along um, which you could see on a topographical map but it was covered in sand, in, um, in pine trees and these pine trees are you know 50 60 feet tall and you couldn't see you know 20 yards without there's no there's no uninterrupted views at all. So when we were um, routing the golf course or when um, CDP were routing the golf course, it was sort of you had an idea of where everything was going to go and we would get to a high point point. we're like, well, this will be good tea up here because we'll be able to see the water. It'll be nice to get a few glimpses of the water every now and again when we play the golf course. Then they clear the trees off and, you know, none of us had been there while they were being cleared. It was a commercial operation. We just come along one day. It goes from full of trees to no trees. and Then all of a sudden, all you can see is the water for us from everywhere and that was quite shocking really because we just didn't expect that. So you have these crazy landforms because of the pine trees because you can imagine windswept would smooth out the dunes and but the, the pine trees and the marum trap it so you get these very um, unusual steep short shut sort of things that if you built... If um it looked like something if Mike Strance was told to like go and build me sand dunes like this what that's what it would look like you know it would be like up and down and crazy just a, sharp just a little like, sharper
0: yeah kind of like the, yeah, the, exactly. the chambers it wouldn't bay look natural. uh constructed sand dunes or tobacco road as opposed to yeah, exactly. what you usually see which is kind of smoother
1: yes and and more rolling well and it's and that it's really because of the pine plantation trapped all the sand so now there's no natural wind movement or or smoothing of the so when you take them off now we have these just like irregular shapes so it's really um it, it, it's unique so you've got this distinctive landscape from early
0: on mike clayton was advising on this project and he was going to be involved in the architecture team yeah you mentioned before that mike was at at some point in the development of this project Part of the firm OCCM, which stands yep. for Ogilvy Cocking, Mike Cocking, Clayton yep. and Mead, Ashley Mead. Correct. A yep. couple of years ago, that firm became OCM, and yep. Mike Clayton joined up with Mike DeVries, who's an American architect, and Frank Pont, who's an architect based in Europe, to form yep. Clayton, DeVries, and Pont. CDP, yes. which I believe yeah. you've mentioned a couple of times. I think I have all that right. There, there's a there's a bit of a you know, the, the bands are kind of trading bassists and drummers and and yeah, and, yeah. and now yeah, we, we've um, got what it, so in any case, how how did these changes all affect the Seven Mile Beach project? Because my, Mike Clayton was involved in the project throughout these these different iterations of who his partners were.
1: Yeah, and, and really it was Mike Clayton golf. And then it became Ogilvy Clayton Golf. And then it became Ogilvy Clayton Cocking Mead. Right. So it, but but Ash and Mike Cocking had worked with um, Mike Clayton as sort of the project manager. And, and, and Mike Cocking does a lot of the, the routings and all that sort of stuff. Um, so they, they were around when Barn Bugle Dunes was being built. So my understanding is that um, Ash Mead was on site a lot sort of just managing the construction of Barnbugle Dunes, I guess with Brian Schneider maybe was down mm. there. There might have been another. It was Tom um, Doak's team, shaper. you know. Yeah, I think it was a, Brian. with Mike Clayton and and his, they were all correct, sort of out correct. there, right? Yeah. Yeah, so when I was, you know, I'd obviously known Mike for a long time. So we talked about Barnbugle Dunes and I always said to him, like, why are you building a course up there? It's ridiculous. Build one at Seven Mile Beach. You've got to build one. So I kept telling him through the early, late 90s, early 2000s, that you've got to build one at Seven Mile Beach. And then he finally brought his laptop to a tournament. He's like, will have a look at these pictures. I'm like, oh, no, that's pretty good. You know, <laughs> Barnbugle Dunes, yeah, it looks pretty good. You build it up there, that'll work. Um, so when I was, you know, trying to convince the government because it's on Crown land to um, give me the opportunity to lease the land and all that sort of stuff, you know, having clates who had been involved with Barnbugle Dunes because that was sort of like where the head was at. It was the success of Barnbugle Dunes, which made them think like, oh, from an economic driver you know jobs tourism economic activity these public golf resorts can be a winner and you know and so i'm here saying well you know we can do a barn bugle dunes down here and in double visitor stays and people gonna have a golf trail because it's only three hours away they can drive down all that sort of stuff so that's when um i brought clates down so i was always going to use clates and then jeff came on board with ogilvy clayton so it was always a three or four of us so when it was um, – so I was actually calling Clates about so, – because we had a long um, period between getting the permit and actually starting the project. You know, I was, I was finding – we had some of the investors drop off because it took us so long to get the permit. And if, you, if you're ever dealing with, with people and capital, they want the capital to go in and come out. They, they don't, they don't want to just sort of like be waiting around for four or five years and nothing happening. And waiting to to deploy it, they've already they're off onto the next thing. So that's basically what happened to us: is that it took us so long um, to finally get the permits that when it came to starting, like some of the main investors had sort of lost a little bit of interest. So we're at this point where um, I'm calling Mike about something because we're going to restart the project, and he's like, "Oh, um, uh, well, I'm not really." I'm not really with those guys anymore. So I didn't know, right? So because I was I was talking to um, Ash or I was talking to Mike Cocking about something, and then I was talking like I didn't know that they hadn't that the, the relationship had dissolved or anything like that. A little awkward. <laughs> yeah, it was well, I mean, I was, yeah, I mean I guess it was and that they, they were kind of like dealing, they were right, they were going through it, I guess. It's like, you know, it wasn't nothing had been finalized, but it was happening. So I don't think really know how they knew how to proceed. But, um, but to Mike Cocking and Ashley Mead's credit, they I think they wanted to look at it with a fresh set of eyes too because it had been four or five years. So with, with them talking about, well, we really need to come down, start all over again, I'm like, well, if we're going to start all over again, I, I didn't feel comfortable not having Clates involved because, you know, he had been – just because of our history and I'm, I'm a very sort of loyal person and I'm just like, well, Clates has to be involved. So if you guys want to change everything anyway, I may as well, you know, Let's have, have someone else come and have a look at it. So when, so then I f- spoke to Clates again a couple of months later. I'm like, I don't know really what I'm going to do. I might, you know, look at opening up to everybody and anybody, you know, as opposed to just because we'd already kind of got the design and had a routing and, and paid for it and all that sort of stuff. So he said, well, I've got this new partnership with Mike DeVries, the guy I did Kate Wickham um, and Frank Pont. He said, well, maybe Mike maybe Mike and I can come down for a week We'll go and look at it. I'm like, yeah, sure. Okay. It's like, well, how soon? Like, well, let's just all go down. We literally did five days later, we're on site. And um, and that's how it all sort of started with CDP. But it was interesting in that obviously we had a few different versions of the routing through the, through the years and there was a few changes that had to be made because of planning issues. Um, and then it sat idle for a while. And then so Mike... Clayton and I, we had an idea of like holes we'd fallen in love with, or parts of the property that we really liked, or, and then when Mike Devries came down, we kind of had to try really hard to just be like completely silent and not have any input whatsoever, and not be like going, oh, wouldn't it ooh, be a good hole over here, wouldn't it, or wouldn't you, you not want a dogleg right here, or why are we going over here? And um, and it's interesting because he took the he condensed the routing quite quite a bit. So basically, the area we had for the first golf course under, say, the Ogilvy no, um, Clayton routing probably took up another um, probably forty or fifty acres. So it was quite significant. Hmm. Basically, seven holes out to the west of, the, well, okay, the west of the clubhouse or the sand dunes. Now it's all very much to the east of this large dune that where it starts and, and and sort of goes out that side. So, but there are a couple of things that are similar. Probably, and probably only probably only really one hole, one or two holes that that go on similar ground. Three holes, um, but yeah. And then and then once we actually get going, once we remove the trees, things change quite a bit. Only on three or four holes, but I, there's a whole section that looked like you couldn't use for golf. And and if you And if you talk to Mike, he'll say he moved as much dirt here as he has anywhere, even though a lot of it will look like you've done nothing. Mm. But there's a a certain section that just looked like it was too extreme because it went from 60 feet to 10 feet to 60 feet to 10 feet. It was just up and down and so crazy choppy um, that when you walked it, it seemed impossible to have golf there. But when you cleared the trees off, playing along the ridge along four and and, um, all of a sudden – it might look like, well, no, you can do that. Just push a bit of sand, fill that in here, do that there, no problem. So that then made five of different hole and, and another a couple of other holes changed. But, yeah, that was sort of – there was a big difference from sort of routing one OC to CDP, and then there were some more infield changes that have come along the way.
0: And Mike DeVries is known to American golfers for – Many of his courses in Michigan, some excellent, yep. affordable courses in the Grand Rapids area, including Diamond Springs and the Mines, also Gray Walls in the Upper Peninsula, and uh, you know a Kingsley Club, uh, where yep. uh, Friday Golf has recently had an event. So a lot of really good that. courses in that state. But he also has uh, was involved with a course called Cape Wickham, which yep. is on uh, King Island. Uh, w- you know, which yeah. I believe is, is technically in Tasmania, right? It is, It's yeah. part of that, uh, uh, yeah, that area. So, um, I guess you you may have been at least somewhat familiar with with Mike Devries uh, before he came on board with with Mike Clayton.
1: Yeah, familiar only through Kate Wickham. Um, yeah. Like it, it was interesting in that um, whoever basically whoever Clayton was going to partner with was who I was going to use, and then when I met Mike. Um, He's a great guy. Um, we got on really well, um, and it, when you spend five days with someone and you're just spending ten hours a day just wandering around, you just basically, you know, it's like an extended job interview. You're just talking to each other and feeling each other out, and by the end, you have a pretty good idea of whether um, you kind of think the same way about certain things. And so that that was great those four or five days. But I was familiar with Kate Wickham. Kate Wickham is quite spectacular. Um, it's also one of those courses where it's so pretty that you know it's that, that, that whole sort of uh, Mackenzie thing about Cypress Point is like well, the, is the golf is it too pretty to actually judge the golf course um, but yeah I mean there's some really nice holes there but then when um, he by the end of the week and he'd had the routing and everything was good it was just like no this is perfect it just it just felt right um, and uh, and the other big thing that seemed really important to me was that Mike's still old school in a respect that, he still likes to touch everything on the ground, um, kind of like how Doak and Gil and Bill Core were um, earlier on. But now they've gotten so busy, they just, and, you know, spending all day on a machine doesn't seem like as much fun. While Mike just, as he says, he loves burning diesel. Just get He'll, he'll, he'll be on that dozer from sunup till sundown and never complain and just be going at it all day. So I kind of looked at that and thought, well here's a great opportunity to have a someone who is a brilliant shaper, also the architect um, and he'll be on site and he's been on site for 18 months. I mean it's it's insane to have the principal having that much input um, and from a, you know the, the owner or the developer if you like, you know it's um, it's perfect. When you were
0: thinking through the design for Seven Mile Beach with Mike DeVries and, and Mike Clayton, were there any like influences or inspirations that, that you brought up a lot, uh, other courses or other architects that, that served as kind of reference points in, in your discussions about what the design would be?
1: No, I, I basically took the, the line that my job is to hire experts and let them, let them do their thing. Let them do their thing, but conversely, I was also very. I'm more cognizant of like, well, it has to be a good business. It doesn't matter if we build a great golf course if it's not a good business, and you know, then so I, I would always throw in a few kind of Mike Kaiser lines and like, well, should we? Can we get well the retail golfer? We like a good view up here. What's again? He can we have a bit? You know, <laughs> retail golf. that is You know, a can we make Kaiserism. this a little crazy? You know what I mean? Just sort of bring up those sorts of things, but. You know, I'm not some golf architect geek or anything like that. I mean, I've read, you know, quite a few of the books, but I don't, I don't take it too seriously or, or, get, or get too into it. But, you know, there's been times where, you know, I was at Old Town. Actually, they, they've just redone it again, but I was, I was there before they, um, they redid, changed all the grasses up there. But I hadn't been there um, and playing there. I'm just like the internal contours of the green are just amazing. Like you, you're there and you're like you hit it in the middle of the green and it's the worst place to be. You should, have, you should have missed short-sighted yourself because it's a much easier chip because you're chipping in this little bowl, this little thing. But if you've got to putt across it, no chance. Um, so it was funny how we get to the second hole and, I'm, and I've just come off playing old town and I'm just like, man, I love those internal contours. And, uh, and then, you know, a week later, Mike's like, well, wait until you see the second green. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I mean, we always have conversations about it and um, Mike DeVries is really good in kind of, picking our brains on what what we like from like a really good player's perspective because i think he feels more connected with like i know what an 18 handicap or a bogey golfer i want to keep them engaged i want to keep everyone engaged but he kind of his, his ethos seems to be around i want it to be a difficult shot for me but an easy five on a par four so there's always this area this play space if it'll be a tough shot to make a four for them but they'll always be able to make a bogey well for me to make a three i've got a you know, the execution has to be quite high. And that seems to be the ethos that's repeated over and over again, where I'll look at a shot and be like, wow, this is going to be tough to get close. I mean, it's not going to be a hard but like for a, a bogey golfer, if you like, they'll be able to run up there with a the putter or just there's plenty of space, knock it around. There's no like huge massive hazards. There's no really forced carries. There's a lot of just green to play within green space. Um, so that seems to be the balance they're trying to shake, um, trying to take with the whole golf course.
0: Yeah, you know, one of the things I really wanted to find out from you is how your professional golf career has kind of factored into this golf development and golf design process. I I wonder yeah. if you think it's generally, if in some ways it has been a hindrance to understanding what's happening out there, or whether you think you've been able to really add things and bring things to the process because of that experience as, as an elite golfer. It sounds like DeVries has sought out your advice on, on, on some occasions from that perspective.
1: Yeah. And he also had like Lucas Michelle, who was the oh, yeah. mid amateur champion. Like he was, you know, t- basically doing his apprenticeship shaping under him. And you've got who was obviously a professional golfer as well. So I felt like he was getting a lot of information about what, what we thought about it. But I think like professional golf has nothing to do with golf course architecture or, or having to have any knowledge of the history or any knowledge of what makes a hole great or what makes a hole engaging. Professional golf is all about execution. It has nothing to do with anything else. You don't you you have there's no reason for you to understand anything the architect wants you to do. It's just like can I execute? Can I hit this target? Can I hit that target? You know, and all that sort of stuff. So it, it's always interesting to me. It's like we're well, like all oh, these dumb golf pros, they know nothing about golf course architecture. It's like, well you don't that's not the point. Yeah, that's not that's <laughs> like the not point your is, job. That's really <laughs> that's not, your that's job. Totally not your job. So so what what I've found is that as I've gone on this journey and become more, as I said, I'm always looking around like what? it has to be a great golf course to be, like that's step one. Like you, you don't do it unless it's going to be a great golf course because you can't expect someone to get on a plane in LA, fly halfway across the world, come to your little town, you know, paying thousands of dollars to get there and just to play some, eh, that was all right. You know what I mean? Like it's got to be, And conversely, it's also got to be something where it can't be priced or such a bucket list trip that people only tick it off once. You know, they're going to want to come back and back and over and over again. And that's sort of the success of Barnbugle Dunes. You could argue it's the success of Bandon Dunes versus Pebble Beach or some of these other places. It's like, okay, so Pebble Beach is a bucket list trip. You go and you do Pebble Beach and you spend your two grand and you're done, but you're not like, oh, let's go back next year. While Bandon, you might spend the same amount of money. You might play... Five or six diff- five six courses, or play five or six times or three. But most people that play there are immediately like, okay, let's book this again next year. Um, so it's finding that balance from a business perspective. Now, on the golf course architecture side of things, um, you, you kind of have to i didn't want want to get involved and be sort of like well it needs to be tough it needs to be you know it needs to be able to hold a tournament or anything like that i basically just let them let, let them do their thing to be honest and then when they ask me questions yeah i'll give them answers I'll, I'll tell them what i think but i really think there's no being a professional golfer doesn't lend itself to having any knowledge about because um, you don't think of it like an average golfer would think about it do you know what i mean right like where i where i stand where i'm going to hit my tee shot to and i look around like if i'm walking up and i'm like you know at 150 200 yards off the tee every shot looks impossible <laughs> you know what i mean but if i walk 300 yards off the tee and i look around I'm like yeah that's no problem you know so it's it's a completely different perspective and yeah, it seems like it would just
0: be unnecessary clutter for a professional golfer yeah. to to be thinking about architecture. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you as somebody who's constantly thinking about architecture while playing golf, yeah. that it certainly does not enhance the, uh, my, no. my ability to to play well, thinking about the, the, the design at all times. It, it introduces a lot of complexities that you just don't need. If you're, if
1: you're trying to play excellent golf. Um, yeah. The one thing that did, um, it has, it, I've kind of become a bit of a golf snob in respect that I don't enjoy social golf because I played so much professionally and it's not that it's work, like I love golf, but I'm not going to go and play a social round at golf for some average golf. Now, if we're going to go up to Pinehurst or if we're going to go to Palmetto or if we, you know, cause I live in Charlotte, somewhere around here, if we're going to go, um, you know, out to Bandon or, or, or old town or anywhere like that, I'm in like, yep, let's go. But if you just want to play at some local club, I'm just like, mm, I'll just go and hit some balls. Like I've become like this, yeah, a bit of a uh, an architect snob. Where it's almost like you're better off not knowing. You can enjoy golf way more if you don't know. Oh, it totally <laughs> so ruins. You. You, yeah. I, I recommend to everybody listening to this podcast, please back away <laughs> quickly from from being into architecture. Uh, yeah, because I know I've, pl- I've no, I know I've I know I've played um, you know, some of the newer golf courses, and you look around and you're like, wow, I can see where that. That blade cut through there. I mean, they didn't really tie that in that nicely. They could have done a better job there. I mean, that just looks like I can almost see where they just cut it across. I was like, "What are you doing? Yeah, what has that got to do with anything?" Welcome to the club.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. All right. So, uh, j- like, basic facts about about Seven Mile Beach. Uh, can you give me an idea of what of what the yeah you know, the fundamental business model is here? Green yeah. fee structure, when it's gonna open, stuff that people might want to know if they're if they're looking to go to Tasmania at some point and, and play some golf. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, fully very similar to Band and Dunes, Bugle Dunes, fully public. Um, it'll be in around about 180 Aussie dollars. What's that? About 120 US dollars around, maybe 110. And we're looking to open next November. Um, we don't have any accommodations yet. The, I mean, the nice thing about Hobart is that. It's like it's the capital city and it has – the airport gets about two and a half million passenger movements a year. You can get in and out of there from pretty much any capital city. There's direct flights from Auckland as well. So as far as getting from the U.S. there, you can you can go to Sydney and through to Hobart. You can go to Auckland and through to Hobart. So it's, it's a little bit more accessible as far as that goes. Um and there's plenty of places to stay. There's amazing restaurants. There's a lot more to do than just golf. Like people come to Hobart. It's one of the main tourist attractions in Australia, actually, the, the cities. So to have, you know, potentially a you know a world class public golf resort, 25 minutes from downtown. Hopefully, it'll be another valuable tourism asset that everyone wants to visit multiple times. And then it was announced
0: last year, I believe, late last year, that you've already decided to build another course right next door to seven mile beach this one called five mile beach yeah what what can you tell me about this project i've done i've done a little digging and and it seems like (laughs) you've kept some information under wraps which i
1: respect but uh but what can you tell me (laughs) about about it um we're kind of at the permitting stage basically so it's we've done the development application with council um, we went through the first process, which is called the expression of interest. So, anytime you want to do, because it's in um, crown land, so the land is owned by the government, um, and it's it's a it's a reserve. It's not like a a nature reserve or any sort of world heritage reserve. It's just a very generic reserve. Um, so, if you ever want to do any development in these sorts of areas, you've got to through you basically got to show the whole plan, the whole business plan, um, where the golf course is going to go, everything about it. Um, preliminarily through the state government. So you go through that process and they go, go, okay, yes, we like this idea. You can proceed with um, actually trying to get the development permit or the the permit for the golf course through local council, because that's who's the municipality or the, the county, if you like, we're in Clarence, who oversees whether you can get the permit or not. It's not a state government thing. So you go through the state government process. So we got through that. So now they sort of become your partner in, in trying to help you get through council. And, you know, the council process is purely a planning process. You go through, you show what you're trying to do, you show, you know, the effects on the, the natural environment that you're not, you know, influencing any, there's no Aboriginal heritage, there's no flora and fauna issues. If you are, you're mitigating them or dealing with them and all that sort of stuff. So you go and do all that. So we're, we're about to go, it's kind of with council. So they have, you know, I think, Forty days or something to respond and give you all the questions, and they might have a few questions about, oh, we need an extra car park here, or can you put this here, or do that. So you make the adjustments, then it goes to council. So the land itself is right next to the first hole. It's it's, it's basically all part of the same land. So if we're on the southern side of the dolphin, you know, it's on the northern side, connected. Like it's right across the, it's the same piece of property. But the interesting thing is, is that where you go to twenty meters and then drop down off a basically a sand cliff to two meters now you hit five mile which goes out to the lagoon that has sort of an 11 meter dune in the middle but it's mostly four and five very classic nothing crazy very classic um land Mm -hmm. and we always had discussions about wanting to build 36 holes there that was always the plan you know one course is a um, curiosity two courses is a destination as mike kaiser likes to say um that if you don't um if it's going to be so different, which is going to be the interesting part. It's not going to be like another architect's take on a very similar piece of land. It is a really a completely different piece of land. So it'll be probably a lot more walkable and um, a lot more classic links, possibly. It too is smothered in pine trees. We're still deciding on whether we rip them all out. It, they are a bad. They're not like the beautiful pine trees at Pinehurst here. They're kind of they good for about 20 years, as I said, and you need to de-limb them a bit. There'll probably be more work... Trying to keep them and make them look half decent than it would be to clear them off. But if you want my marketing sell to anyone, or especially to the architects who I'm trying to get to to do the second golf course, I'll be like, well, if uh, if Seven Mile Beach is your Marvel movie, right, and Five Mile Beach might be your Academy Award winner. Okay,
0: that's interesting. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to figure out whether that's uh whether that's a slam on Seven Mile Beach. I guess it depends on how no. much you like Marvel movies.
1: No, exactly. It's like it—it's it, 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 going to be epic. It's going to be in scale. It's going to be big. It's going—it's going to—it's going to blow your mind. Yeah. it's like the original might, Iron Man might, movie, which was awesome. Yeah, you might yeah. come off that and go down to seven to five mile beach, and it'll be—it'll be a lot more subtler. It'll be a lot more classic. I see. Um, or the other way you could describe it is Irish links versus Scottish links. Sure. If you're in like yeah. the south of Ireland, you've got the big dunes right. and there, and it's—it's it's quite extreme. Um. And then you go to, you know, the seaside links, you know, and you know, all the, the old course or like where they, it's, it's a lot more subtle.
0: Right. The, the human-sized yeah. undulation, as Gil Hans likes yes. to say, as opposed to the more
1: stratospheric stuff that you might see at Balbunyan exactly. or, or yep. La Hinch or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, But it would be nice to have them right next door to each other. That's sort of the interesting part because right. we have enough land in theory um, under our current lease to build a course west. So we could have a seven-mile beach east or west, There's enough land to the west. The land would be almost exactly the same as the low section or the lower holes um, at Seven Mile Beach, which is fantastic. And seeing what Mike DeVries has done through there, another 18 holes of that would be incredible. Um, But we really like the idea of this Five Mile Beach site just because it will just be so different Mm. from a golf resort experience.
0: How do you think through the process of selecting an architect? sounds like uh the uh, the <laughs> architect hasn't been selected that you're still in the process but uh i wonder if you could at least tell me what your what your philosophy is because th- there's been a lot of commentary about different you know megaplex golf resorts mm-hmm. and their their tendency to go with kind of the reliable choice yeah. of really established architects, which is understandable in the sense that yeah, we know that Corin Crenshaw and Tom Doak and Gil Hance are gonna produce great golf courses. If you give them a good yeah. piece of land, it's a guarantee, right? It's gonna be yeah. it's gonna be really good. Yes. Now I, I I get the sense that maybe you're after something different or that your thinking is a little bit different around that. Uh, if it
1: is, just uh, tell, tell me about that. How how are you thinking yeah, this? I can't story? confirm or deny. It. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, yeah, I think what I, re- I mean, everyone gets to. I mean, every architect will tell you that the client will come and tell you that this project's going to change your life. Do you know what I mean? This is the one. I've got the piece of land. I've got the property that's going to put you on the map. And they all get sold that that stuff all the time. But I, I, I do think um, that you want someone who does see it as a tremendous opportunity and not just another project. And, and that's not a knock on any of those guys, but they're just so successful and they're so wanted. I, I'd imagine they have so many different great pieces of land to look at that it might just, it might just look like another project. While to me, it's like the most important project I'm going to do. It can't just be another project for that for that person so um not that i'm i mean those guys do amazing work and it's it's not that i've decided that there's no chance they could do it but it's also the fact that devries was on site for 18 months it's probably spoilt me a little bit do you know what i mean you kind of want the thing. well i want someone who comes down and and, and thinks this is going to be you know a project worth their time Mm. and and worth being there and fully investing themselves in the process because they want it to be as good as i want it to be um so, I mean, it's it's looking for those types of people. And then, you know, I think you've got to get along with them too. You know, I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't think there's – obviously, you go and play and you get an idea of, of what their work is like. But I even think sometimes you don't necessarily – I don't think you can say that's a core course, or a Bill core, a core Crenshaw course, or that's a Gil Hance course, or that's a Tom Dote course. I think a lot of the times, you know, they don't have um, – they don't seem to be too repeatable I'm trying to trying to think of the right word but it, it's not like you walk off and like well, that is a but I felt like you could do that with a Nicholas course mm-hmm. do you know what I mean right the huge waste but you know there are certain characteristics where you'd look around and be like okay that feels like that sort of a golf course um, so yeah I'm I'm kind of open to ideas but I also have my eye on on um, on some people as well
0: very good vague answer there, Matt. Yeah, I, I, yeah, good vague answer. I can
1: see this, uh, this uh,
0: communications <laughs> training from back in your institute days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh,
1: <laughs> that two hours a week did me a
0: world of good. <laughs> all right. Well, it's been really interesting talking to you, Matt. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. No, and, thanks for uh, having me. Best of luck with the, uh, with the projects going on there in Tasmania. They, they genuinely sound really fascinating.
1: We'll have to have you all out in uh, November,
0: December next year. Uh, I I mean I I it wouldn't be hard to convince me to get out there.
1: Might be hard to convince me to get on that long of a plane flight, but uh. <laughs> no, you just you can binge watch anything. It's, you, it's easy. You probably spent fifty. Just use your pandemic training. You probably sat in the in the bed for fifteen this hours watching something. <laughs> We're all trained for it now. All right. Thank you, Matt. Yeah. No worries. Thank you.
0: This episode of the Friday Golf Podcast was produced by Matt Ruchus. Thank you, Matt. I'll make my usual request to leave a rating and review for the Friday Golf Podcast wherever you happen to be listening to this. If it is in the Apple Podcast app, then those ratings and reviews are especially meaningful for us as we try to find new listeners for this program. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon with another episode. Thank you.